On this day in 1969, the Beatles release Abbey Road in the UK, the last album the group recorded, although Let It Be was the last album completed before the band's breakup in 1970. Abbey Road actually received mixed reviews at first. Nick Cohen of the New York Times said, individually, the album's songs are nothing special. Albert Goldman of Life said, not one of the greats. History has been kind, though, placing it arguably in the top five or ten albums of all time. Um, I don't know about you, Ian, but I just get the chills listening to any aspect of that album. Oh, it, it happened. I'm just sitting here, eyes closed, right? totally reminiscing. Just absolutely wonderful. So just, just to put things in concept, concept, I love the idea, the story that Thomas Watson... In 1943, who was the head of IBM, said there was only space for five computers in the world. That goes alongside Abbey Road. <laughs> George, are you a fan of Abbey Road? Do you have it? I don't have yeah. it, no. No, I don't. I mean, you know, I was born in 1989. Fair enough. Fair. We'll let you off the hook. Um, uh, but uh, it's a good album to get. Now, by the way, one thing is totally addictive. If you haven't seen it, the famous cover art, of course, has the Fab Four crossing Abbey Road, uh, the Abbey Road crossing. And to this day, people still cross that crossing and take photos. And there's a webcam you can go on and... You can actually watch people taking photos. I want to know, have you crossed the Abbey Road crossing? I have. Have you? Yes, I have. But I tell you what I do have, though. For my birthday the other day, my 73rd birthday in July, someone gave me this wonderful picture of the Beatles crossing Cuba Street. What? And it's painted. And I've forgotten her name. I'm so sorry. Um, I've forgotten the name of the artist, but she's from Wellington. And it's absolutely stunning. Oh, my goodness. Crossing Abbey Road, uh, crossing Cuba Street, and Paul McCartney out of step, all, everything. Mm -hmm. That's unbelievable, Ian. Right. Um, Loving your responses. They just keep on coming how you first met. We're going to come back to this on the show. We met in Midgley Ward at Napier Hospital. I was the senior nurse. He was the patient awaiting knee surgery. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 52 years ago. Um, uh, Kia ora, Wallace. I met my husband on a date to the rubbish tip in Christchurch. The panel are NZ National. Wellington has entered level one water restrictions from Sunday, joining Upper Hutt and South Wairarapa. We talked about this, didn't we, yesterday? Wellington use at an all-time high. The region is losing the equivalent of 27 Olympic swimming pools a day to leaks, much of that on private land. The issue of water meters was raised yesterday. A contentious issue there. In Tamaki Mukaro, I can look at my bill, I can see at a glance how much I've used. With us is Carpety Coast District Council Mayor Janet Holborough. Kia ora, Janet. Kia ora. So, much of Wellington, I understand, does not have water meters, but they were introduced to Carpety. Is that right? That's right. Over a decade ago, between 2012 and 2014, 23,000 meters were in. Are you there? Hello? Yeah, are you there now? Yes, good. So have people taken to them? Yes, they were contentious before they were installed, but they haven't been contentious since. We've seen a huge reduction in water usage and um, also managed to fix um, 443 leaks initially and um, more since then. So it's just been an incredible success. 
I was reading the history of this, and it was contentious as an understatement. There was street protest. It was it was a very divisive issue. I do see here a stat that surprised me. There's been a 97% drop in water being lost to leaks. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The water was just gushing into the ground, and nobody knew about it. And my suspicion is the rest, the same is happening in the rest of the Wellington region as well. And some of that was on public land as well. Um, Kiwira land was losing a bit of water. Um, the council system itself was losing water. And a lot of them, though, on private properties, and people were able to find those leaks and fix them. And I think that process turned a lot of opinion because people just didn't realise how much water was being wasted. And it's just, um, yeah, it's criminal in a way because um, water is such a precious resource and I think it helped people to realise that too. I mean, at the time, a lot of people said, you know, why should we pay for water? It falls free from the sky. But I think... Fair point though, isn't it? Well, it's not it falls free from the sky, but it's not free to get it to your tap. And I think that's... um, And safely and... um, you know, and effectively. So, so yeah, so no. that, that was a call at the time, but I don't think um, anybody has said that since. Well, George, you're in Wellington. What's, what, I mean, what's your thoughts? Oh, I, I'm pretty fired up about this issue. <laughs> so just last night I got home, turned the tap on, went to give my two-year-old a bath, and it was brown water coming out of the tap. You can't go anywhere in this city. Really? Which is pretty much a run-down dump at this point, if I'm honest, without seeing burst pipes, sewerage in the sea. So ideologically, I'm all for water meters. I think it would be an impossible political sell when we have had decades of underinvestment and the infrastructure is just at an all-time low. So I, I as a Wellingtonian, I I'm like hell no. Put that on my bill right now, I'll be in I'll be down the streets with a with a sign. Okay. <laughs> Janet. Yes. So a lot of people felt that way in Carpety as well. But I think the thing to realise is you don't pay any more. In fact, um, I think around sixty five percent of people pay less than they did before. But what it, help, what it helps to do is uh, create a system where you lose, you, you lose less water and you're more effective with the way you use water so you can then afford to upkeep the infrastructure. Not only do we have enough water in Carpety, but we've um, made investments so that the water quality is, um, is up to scratch as well. And I think... They all go together. Yeah, but, and, sorry to interrupt, but 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 if but water meters won't magically um, make the council and send contractors out. We've got more leaks and broken pipes than we've got the ability to fix. Yes. Yeah, so what water meters do is it helps you establish where those leaks are, so that you can fix them, so that you can waste less water, so that you can spend less on water, so that you can spend that money instead creating infrastructure that's going to provide fresh, clean water for people. And at the same time as Carpety put in water meters, um, in the main water supply, a river recharge scheme was put in so that um, the the river is um, replenished with water below the outtake so that there's always enough water in the Waikanae River. And we haven't had any water restrictions really mm. since the water meters were put in. So, you know, it's All right. Ian, can I ask? So, uh, Auckland uh, has water meters. I haven't known anything else really that I can recall. What about in uh, Otipuri, Dunedin? I have no idea. I don't think we do. 
Um, but, you know, my question for this is um, if people are paying less, why don't you just give them the water meters? Why don't you put them in? Because if the water meters have sold, that solved the leaking problem by 97%, that's the investment that I'd expect the ratepayers' money to be invested in. So, yeah, I would love to have a meter at my house just to remind me how much water I'm using. But I, I think, you know, as, as long as it didn't cost people more, I think of my son with three children, and I watch him measure the time he turns the power on, measure the time he turns it. He's, bar, you know, he's got three kids being bathed. So, again, as long as it doesn't cost people more, it, because it's a basic right. Well, that's a fair and point, if, Janet. And, and if it and if it's finding the real problem is ninety ninety seven percent of bad pipes and dirty water and stuff, get those meters out there really fast in the houses and start getting the details of what you've got to go and fix. Janet. Yeah, so finding the leaks was only part of the picture. There was also a 26% reduction in water use across the district. And the, the really astounding figure was those who were used it who were high, what we call high water users. And most of that is actually outside use, um, irrigating gardens, um, using a hose, things like that. Um, they um, showed a 70% reduction in water use. And I just think it helped people to be aware of the amount of water they were using mm. For those but, more vulnerable families, we did set up a hardship um, grant system so that people could apply to have part of their water right. um, bill But refunded. isn't that the point? And it's hardly been used, to be honest. Isn't that the point? The reason haven't been paying more. The reason people save water is because they've got a mechanism in the house to measure it. So put the mechanism in so they can measure it. Yeah, th- that, that was one argument that was made at the time. But I think part of charging is... Help, does help incentivise that um, reduction in use. And if it had been a real problem for people paying um, charges through water meters, it's certainly something we could have looked at, um, the water meters as just a measuring device. But the fact is there actually hasn't been a problem because most people are paying less. They've paid less than they expected to. And we haven't had to use those hardship grants. And we're also we're paying rates. Yeah. I pay my rates. I thought I paid my rates for things like rubbish being collected, water being collected, increasingly we're having to pay for those. Mm. What about the idea of here's what a family of three kids needs, all of that is free, now you measure to make sure you don't go over it with your Just meter. final thought, Janet. Yeah, that's certainly something that could be considered by Wellington. Um, I think putting in the meters is the main thing. How it's charged um, is another question and something which could be discussed yep. with the community. But what I really encourage is not to have a knee-jerk reaction to it, to really think about the benefits that it can bring. Well, there you go. That's uh, one area that does have water meters, Carpety Coast there. That's the District Council, Mayor, and a whole. But uh, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, email me. Um, certainly quite a response on that. A water, uh, Auckland, of course, has water meters. And Sarah Poe is the Beatles' Cuba Street artist. Yeah, there we have it. Uh, The panel, RNZ National. Now, uh, George Estiliano, Sir Ian Taylor with me today. And it seems that every day we hear word of another fallout of the climate crisis as we talked about the SUVs earlier. Well, Victoria University glaciologist Brian Anderson revealed that in the past five years, Franz Joseph Glacier has shrunk 500 metres in addition to this, in the past 30 years, 200 Southern Alps glaciers gone. 
Anderson presented his findings in an address to the West Coast Conservation Board. He's with us now. Brian, kia ora. Good to have you on. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? Good. That sounds like a rapid ice loss to me. Half a K in five years? Yeah, so we seem to have entered into a, into another phase of rapid ice retreat at Friends versus Glacier. Um, and like even, even I'm surprised by how quickly it's going back at the moment, to be honest. Every time I go there, I'm kind of shocked that it's still going back. What's the key factor? So I guess everything we've done in the last 20 years has pointed to temperature being really important for uh, controlling what the glaciers do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so air temperature, but that's also, um, if you look a little more broadly, it's actually the Tasman sea surface temperatures, which are a, a key control um, over whether the glaciers gain mass in advance or lose mass in retreat. Well, I I think I said this before, George, that one day I'd like to go and see the Franz Joseph Glacier because I've never been there, uh, but uh, it looks like I better book in fairly soon. Yeah, I've got to say, I, I almost feel a bit ignorant, but I had no idea that there were that many glaciers, to, to be honest, mm. to have 200 of them disappear. I feel like, um, you know, I, I went to school in, in, in Canterbury and um, I feel like we don't actually get taught about this stuff at all. So that's an, another thought. But, I mean, look, the climate change doom and gloom um, is somewhat, I've moved into my almost fatalist phase. Um, are you a fatalist at this point? I'm, I'm definitely an optimist. And I think, I mean, you're right, the most surprising thing about this is how many glaciers there are. Like, we have almost 3,000 glaciers in New Zealand. Um, what? But even so, we've... <laughs> You have to come I from guess, the South Island. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess what we see is that the small glaciers are t- disappearing and the larger glaciers are, are retreating rapidly. Mm. Um, and you're right, I, I was never taught anything about this at school either. But I think the, the key thing that um, our work has shown, if we, if we look to the future, then even... Everything, every little bit that we can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, helps the glaciers. So it's not, oh my God, we can't do anything mm. anymore. It's everything we do helps. And so we really we really have a choice. All contributes. Whether... Ian, let's bring you in. Yeah, and I think, you know, this this is just one of the examples. I filmed the Franz Joseph 20 years ago. And no. um, about three years ago, I went back. I could not believe it wasn't there. And you had to go for miles to see the start of it, and that's happened in a 20-year lifespan. Wow. And it's not just the glaciers. You know, some of the, the records now for Antarctica, the Antarctica, that stuff is disappearing at a rate that no one imagined. So it really is important that we start looking at the reality of global warming. Gosh, so you've seen it with your own eyes. I have. That's, that's, interesting, that's interesting, Brian. Uh, Ian's seen it in that 20-year gap. Yeah, it's amazing. Eh? I guess when I when I first visited Franz Josef Glacier as a kid, it was advancing. It was spectacular. It was advancing a metre a day. And then since then, I've watched it stop and then just retreat it at amazing rates. So the the change has been incredible. I, I never thought it could change that quickly. Um, but I guess, you know, it's not... It's not doom and gloom. Like, the glaciers are still spectacular. They're still amazing to visit. And we still have, have control over what happens in the in the future. 
optimism eh? over fatalism. Interesting stuff, Brian, uh, and really appreciate your time. That's Victoria University glaciologist Brian Anderson on the program. Um, oh, I'm uh, appalled that a friend in an unmetered area who gets her baby, now a toddler, to sleep by leaving a tap running. Oh, <laughs> That's what white noise machines are invented for. I I oppose meters, but they certainly make you aware of wasteful habits. It's second nature now. I can hardly believe that. If you text your friend now, tell them to turn the tap off. Um, Gosh, with us on the panel today, and by the way, just absolutely loving your responses. Uh, You so love how you first met. We're going to do a part two. Not sure when, maybe Friday, but we've got to do it again because there's just some gorgeous stories of love coming through today on the panel. But finally, how tidy is your home and when it is tidy do you feel more at ease? Research says that tidiness is not only aesthetically pleasing, guess what? It does contribute to mental well-being. And researchers from AUT recently analysed cleaning and decluttering videos on YouTube, carried out in-depth interviews on this. The result is four strategies for keeping your home tidy. So with us uh, is Dr. Jamal Abarashi, an AUT lecturer in international business strategy and entrepreneurship. Dr. Abarashi, welcome. Hi, thank you. Good evening. It's a pleasure to have you on. It strikes at the heart of who I am because guess what, Jamal? I cannot stand clutter. I could never, ever, ever be a hoarder. You researched this. What was your goal for this research? Right, that's an interesting question. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, so basically, this, is, uh, this research is ongoing and in this research project, are trying to unpack uh, tidiness from different uh, aspects uh, by focusing on tidying practices within family, like uh, at home. Uh, so the main goal of this research project is to actually understand how we can sustain our tidying practices at home, because no matter what we do, all this clutter is coming back. And uh, the current research says that you, how you can actually tidy your home, but there's not much saying about how you can maintain this tidiness yep. and, and have a sustained, sustainable system uh, that actually enables you to, uh, to, have, uh, to maintain tidiness at home. Oh, you're speaking my language. Easy to tidy <laughs> up, Georgina, but it's very hard to maintain. And it does, Georgie, come back to that. You've got a bit of mental well-being there when you go into a nice, tidy home, the carpet's cleaned and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's a bit of joy there, don't you think? Oh, there's no doubt that your environment 100% affects how you feel, you know, mentally. And so I think this is this is great. I mean, I've had... I have bouts of untidiness, but it's probably more, when I think about it, it's probably more reflected with how I'm actually feeling mentally. If I'm feeling right. a little bit in the blues, I actually look around at my desk or my or my bedroom and there'll be books and newspapers and clutter. And I always feel better once I once I tidy up. But I thought this was um this was really awesome. And I think it could make you know, has the potential to make a huge difference to everyday people's lives. Stay there, Jamal, let's bring Ian as well. We'll come back to you. Ian. I, uh, yeah, I, I think you talked about how tidy you were last time I was on the show, Wallace. Um, yeah. But I've got, 
I've got a. Do I? I humble brag. Yes, yes, you do go on. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I do. I have an absolute example for this weekend. My wife Liz and I. We decided we'd clean out the garage. And so we cleaned out, got rid of all the rubbish, took the stuff, found three bike racks that I gave to my son to sell on um, Trade Me because I don't know how to do that. But I have to tell you, every time I drove back into the garage this weekend, I smiled. Mm. It there just you go. felt fabulous. Oh, amazing. See, Jeanette uh, Jamal says, I so agree with this. I've spent the afternoon decluttering my laundry room. It stressed me every time I went in there. It's the best therapy to do this, and I'm happiest in a tidy home, Dr. Abrashi. <clears throat> yes, like um, as the example shows, and then the thing that has been highlighted, um, so the research actually established a clear link between uh, being tidy and organized, and also, uh, uh, so the link is established between living in a tidy, organized home and, uh, and, and mental health and, and mental well being. Uh, so, yeah, um, basically being clean and tidy actually enable us to focus more on the task and the things that need to be done. So there are less distractions in our environment when there is no clutter and then when we are living in, uh, in an environment that is tidy and organized. So it means that there are less distractions and that increase our focus on things that need to be done. Also, um, uh, there is a very like, established link between uh, living in a tidy environment and having low level of stress and anxiety. So the research shows that, not my research, but the established research that shows uh, people who are living in cluttered, messy homes, they have higher level of anxiety and stress comparing to people who are living in organized, oh. tidy home. So that's absolutely true that uh, being clean and tidy has a positive impact on our uh, quality of life and mental health. There we Wallace, go. Wallace, I have yeah, a question Ian. for you. Yes. Can I just a quick question for you? Yeah, of course. Now, because your house is always tidy, <laughs> do you, you, don't, you can't possibly get the pleasure of sort of arriving in and going, oh, my God. <laughs> You're missing this out. feels great. You're missing out. Mess it up for a week. No, because little Ju- I've got a little uh, five and a half yard. And tell you what, Ian. Tell you what, Georgie. Tell you what, Jamal. It's a shocker, <laughs> but we love it. Jamal, I love it. Is there Georgie. any um, is there any research link between the happiness of a woman and a man putting the toilet seat down? Because that is research I want to see. Right. Yeah, and that's, that's quite interesting. And I should say that uh, one of the things that I'm trying to further impact through studying tidiness is how tidiness can show the hierarchies within families. Mm. So we have within, like, within families, we have hierarchies, right? Mm. And then I'm trying to like, uh, unpack this and see how tidying practices can show and highlight this family hierarchy. Oh, it sounds like we've got to get you back on, Jamal, for a part two. This is too interesting. But for now, Sir Ian Taylor, George Tulliano, you've been fantastic. Thank you for being with me. I'm Wallace Chapman. See you tomorrow, 3.45. Lisa Owen at Checkpoint is next.